This is a Romy cast. This podcast was recorded in February of 2022. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Hey, you know, Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what we wanted to do. Not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, former sports guy, many years with TSN and Hockey Night in Canada, and uh, now in retirement, kind of a a music guy. Uh, Do join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. My guests on this episode are new wave music stars Martha Johnson and Mark Gain, also known as Martha and the Muffins. This episode is part one of our conversation about the Beatles' amazing 1966 groundbreaking record, Revolver. The album was so ahead of its time in terms of content. Uh, You had Baroque or classical influences in songs like Yesterday or Eleanor Rigby. Uh, Very unusual for pop music or rock and roll music at that time. Again, this is 1966 and you're hearing strings in pop music. And then there was also the, the psychedelic freak out of a song like Tomorrow Never Knows with tape loops and backwards tapes. and The Beatles were becoming more and more of a studio band at this time. It's a fantastic album. Uh, and in fact, this was the last album that they recorded before they stopped touring. Next album was 1967, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. By then, they were a, a full-fledged studio band. Uh, the website for this podcast is romicast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. If you head there, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far. This is the 19th episode of Series 2. Two and series two will be coming to a close in the next few weeks. By the way, uh, you can find the first eighteen episodes of this series as well as all fifteen episodes of series one. And if you see fit, could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial free? Any donation is much appreciated, and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show: web hosting, advertising, equipment costs. It's a labor of love for me. It's a hobby. Uh, But if you enjoy the show, and I know there are thousands of you that do, then please consider a donation to support the show and my work. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. It's not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to donate. And again, the website is romicast.com. 
Big shout out and thanks to Dave Gilbert for his generous donation recently. Uh, Dave did not send a note along with his donation. Some people do, some don't. Dave didn't, but uh, all the same, Dave, thank you very much for uh, your very kind donation. If you'd like to help out, uh, I'll give you a shout out as well or not. You can do it anonymously. Just visit the website romycast.com. If you haven't already, also, could you please share the podcast via whatever social media channels that you happen to be on? It helps other Beatles fans to find it, uh, and that's the goal. Ultimately, get as many ears listening to uh, this podcast as I can. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. That is Romanuk Paul. There is also a Facebook group page. Just do a search for The Walrus Was Paul Podcast and you'll find it. Most people know Martha and the Muffins, Martha Johnson and Mark Gain, as a great 1980s new wave band based out of Toronto, Canada, who found international success with their 1980 single, Echo Beach, and also with the top dance track, Black Stations, White Stations, in 1984. But with those two tracks, I'll tell you, I mean, you are really just barely getting the knuckle of your baby finger wet as you dip it into their pool of work. I got into the band when I was a DJ on a campus radio station at Ryerson University. They did an album called This Is The Ice Age, which was co-produced by a very young newcomer producer named Danielle Lanois. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> the guy who went on to produce The Unforgettable Fire, The Joshua Tree, Actung Baby, All That You Can't Leave Behind, all those great albums for you too. He produced Bob Dylan's Time Out of Mind. He produced Wrecking Ball with Emmy Lou Harris. I mean, tons and tons of albums. Big guy. Uh, anyway, this is the Ice Age, which I played a lot on that radio show I used to do on campus radio. It is just a stunner of a record. It still is when I come back to it. It reminds me of uh, Radiohead or Robert Fripp or Brian Eno. You know, that kind of music where some of the songs just sort of create this this big sonic soundscape that a tune happens to take place in, if that makes any sense. It's a fantastic album. I strongly urge you to give it a listen. It's called This Is The Ice Age. I love it. You can find out what Martha and Mark are up to if you visit their website, MarthaAndTheMuffins.com. Martha is on Twitter, at MarthaJohnson13 is the handle. That's Martha Johnson and the number 13. Uh, The band also has a page on Facebook as well as a YouTube channel. It is my pleasure to welcome the both of you, Martha Johnson and Mark Gain. Uh, I thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about the Beatles. You're more than welcome. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, So the way I like to start these things off is, uh, and Martha, you can go first or Mark, uh, but what is your first memory of the Beatles in your life? Well, I, I, I can't recall exactly, but it, it was, was was around the um, the Ed Sullivan appearance, I think. But I was well well aware of them before that. But I don't know how that how how I was. I mean, I, th- I think the uh, the radio was probably already playing them. I used to have a, I'm sure had a little trans- transistor radio that I listened to and uh, listened to a station called Chum F- Chum, um, and that was that was probably the way I found out about it about them. How about you, Mark? Uh, I would have 
I would agree with Martha that uh, the Ed Sullivan show was a galvanizing moment, but you know, they had done uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand and probably a whole bunch of other singles before that. So, you know, everybody was primed for that experience on the Ed Sullivan show, but we, I definitely knew about them. And I, you know, I, I just remembered um, in grade four, oh, I wish I had this to show you on the ice, because I keep all my, my the, the more interesting notebooks from my entire school history. So I had this grade four, I don't know what it was, like a geography notebook or whatever. And I drew a picture of the Beatles on the back. The likenesses, you can tell who they are. I didn't know much about amplifiers. So they, 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 were, they had their guitars and I knew that Paul was left-handed. But And then all the wires went into um, wall outlets. <laughs> or I think the rather the guitars went right into wall outlets, which would have been fairly dangerous, I think. <laughs> I didn't know much about that then. So before we get to the album that you chose, uh, I always like to sort of guess, ah, I wonder what, what album, you know, my guest is going to choose. And sometimes uh, it's surprising and, and, and sometimes not. I thought that you guys might have gone for one of Paul McCartney's sort of experimental albums. Uh, remember the three that he did under the guise of the fireman with uh, the producer Youth, uh, Martin Glover from, uh, uh, from Killing Joke? I, I thought you might have gone that direction but you went very traditional, kind of with Revolver. Why is that your choice? Well, there's a lot of stories about the Beatles from before that era, you know, their beginnings and that I, that I have. And when I hear the Beatles, it brings back those memories. But it also, from Revolver on, it has a lot of um, um, memories about their, their development when they became more experimental. So I and I can relate to that as a as a, as a musician. So it sort of covered covered a wide ground for me. Yeah, I would say that you know the emotional um, impact happens at an early age, and I, we do have one of the Fireman records, and I think he you know Paul is obviously an incredibly gifted musician, and his his talent his the range of his talents are very wide, but Revolver sort of he took all those influences that he was getting from the world of avant-garde music. And you, I'm sure you know all about this. So I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but from my, from my point of view, this was the album where he just started to absorb all those influences, you know, like the music, uh, concrete people in France, Delia Derbyshire in the UK uh, and um, Daphne Oram and all those people that were fiddling around with tape loops and stuff. That was the, the first album that a lot of that was heard in a pop album, which I, I mean, and it's probably one of the reasons we picked it. It was just such an incredible, uh, incredibly bold thing to do. And one of the things that we've talked about before in other interviews about George Martin was that um, he introduced them to a lot of things. Paul was absorbing a lot of things. But the amazing thing about the Beatles is they had they were open enough to use those ideas. A lot of people probably would have heard those things and would have gone, well, you know, that's too outside. And they just absorbed everything. 
and that's went into Revolver. So I think that was one of the main reasons we, we picked it. Well, it's, it's certainly, again, I thought you might have gone, you know, the fireman route or something, but Revolver makes perfect sense, especially when I look at your body of work uh, right in that middle period when when you did uh, you did Dance Park, you did This is the Ice Age, that right in there when you were working with Daniel Lanois that we'll talk about a little bit later on, but uh, that, that it does make perfect sense from that regard for sure. Uh, so just before we jump into it, I, I want to give a little bit of context. So Revolver is the uh, was the seventh album recorded and released by the Beatles, and it came out after Rubber Soul and before Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So we're in December of 1965, and Rubber Soul comes out. And 65 was another intense year in terms of work and output from the Beatles. During 1965, they produced two albums of new material. Help came out in August. August and then Rubber Soul for Christmas in December. They also recorded and released the global number one single, We Can Work It Out, backed with Day Tripper. That was a double A side single that came out on the same day as the Rubber Soul album. Uh, just as an aside, imagine guys explaining to uh, to an artist or marketer today, yeah, we're going to release the new album. Uh, there'll be no singles taken from the album, but we'll release a single on the same day as the album. Good with that? <laughs> It was just a different time. Uh, also, in 1965, they shot the movie Help. They played 45 dates, many of which featured matinee and evening shows. They played those dates in the UK, Europe, and the USA. And then, closing out 1965, they played a nine-night tour of the UK, including a show at the Capitol Cinema in Cardiff on December 12, 1965. Significant because that was their last ever proper show of their last. British tour. Uh, they were by then earning about 1,000 British pounds for a single date, the most they had ever earned for a live show in the UK. That was uh, a lot of coin in 1965. After that tour, they took three months off. And that was the longest period of time they had taken off since 1962. Now, we all know that the nightmarish tours of 1966, particularly a date in the Philippines where they ran afoul of the, at the time, Marcos dictatorship. Uh, and then later that year in the United States, that was the John Lennon uh, comments of, uh, you know, the bigger than Jesus, more popular than Jesus interview. Those experiences pretty much solidified their resolve to not tour anymore. However, as far back as the end of 65 and coming off of the success of Rubber Soul, there had already been talk amongst the group that they'd had enough of the touring uh, and that their new home would be in the studio. So they took the three months off and during that time, George Harrison marries Patty Boyd. All the Beatles take holidays. John and Ringo went on a trip to Trinidad. McCartney and Jane Asher take a holiday to Switzerland. All of them hung out a lot in London and soaked up the clubs and the music and the art. And John Lennon significantly got into LSD, using as his guide a book by the renegade Harvard psychologists Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and Ralph Metzner. The book was called The Psychedelic Experience, A Manual to Mind Expansion. Lennon had taken LSD on a couple of other occasions, but now he was determined to use the drug to take a serious voyage of self-discovery. So that is a 
little of what was going on around the time of April the 6th, 1966, when the Beatles walk into EMI recording studios to begin work on what was to become Revolver. The first song they started work on was John Lennon's Tomorrow Never Knows. Recording and mixing sessions for the album continue until June 1966. Final mono and stereo mix is done on June 22, 66. Album comes out in the UK on August 5th, 66, and in Canada and the US on the 8th. Revolver tops the UK charts for seven straight weeks, gets knocked out of top position by The Sound of Music, top 10 for 21 weeks, and top 100 album for 34 weeks in the U.S. Uh, According to chartmasters.org, as of 2015, Revolver had global physical sales of 12.5 million, ranking it fifth in sales in the Beatles' core catalog, below Rubber Soul, and above Let It Be. Uh, The album has been streamed 156.2 million times. The most streamed track, take a guess, guys what do you think the most streamed track on revolver is and uh i'll give you a hint it's not the one you think (laughs) good day sunshine good guess yellow submarine Yellow Submarine streamed uh, 36.9 million times. Uh, This was the last album on which the track listing differed from the original British release. We're going to go by the British release. Uh, It had the usual 14 tracks. However, just to refresh your memory, and this would go back to uh, to your time and mine, uh, Capital USA removed the following tracks from the album. They took off I'm Only Sleeping, And Your Bird Can Sing, and Dr. Robert. All John Lennon tracks. Uh, So Lennon kind of disappeared from the album a little bit in North America. Uh, They cherry-picked them and put them on an album called Yesterday and Today. So the the North American version of the album, a bit of a rip-off. It it, it clocked in at 27 minutes and 47 seconds. Uh, Can you imagine a record company taking liberty with artists' material? No, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> Luckily, we do have the uh, the UK uh, CD pressing. So perfect. Okay, so let's take uh, let's take the CD out of the jewel case, or take the uh, the vinyl out of the sleeve, tack it on, and it is side one, cut one, and tax man. Let me tell you how it will be. One for you, nineteen for me. Cause I'm the tax man. Well, the, the thing that hit me right off the top was that you could hear them in the studio counting it off and coughing and and sort of that slight moment of fiddling about, which I thought was totally cool and. Um, you know, one, two, three, you know, and that was just totally cool. Um, maybe Hendrix borrowed that idea or he, he sort of came by it uh, his own way, but he did a lot of talking during Electric Ladylanders moments where you hear him saying, like, switch on this, like, no, hold this, there's all this chaos going on. And that always seemed to me to be uh, a really great door opening into the process even though you didn't understand the process you felt like you were being led into this secret world where it just wasn't the song being presented like the door would open and they were actually 
getting ready to do it in one's mind's eye, you know? Uh, I love the, uh, the guitar solo. Yes. It reminds me of what uh, the guitar solo that Mark might do on, on our, our music. Because it's very, it's very abstract. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with the blues, pentatonic blues scale at all. It's, you know, it, and, and I mean, the, yeah. I was going to say, you would know, is that George playing the, the solo, right? No, no, it's Paul. Oh, it's Paul. It yeah. is, it, exactly, that is, I mean, it's a George Harrison song, uh, it, you know, leads off the album, and uh, and that's a very speeded George doing the count-in. I've, I've got a theory about that I'll get to in a second, but the, but okay. yeah, the guitar solo, and Martha, you nailed it, because I, I had in my notes, uh, it, it is a McCartney guitar solo. Uh, the story is he'd been saying to George, you know, you should do something really kind of feedbacky and and grungy, and George said, well, you know, why don't you play it? And, and and he did. And uh, I, what I had in my notes, Mark, was to Martha's point, your guitar part on Women Around the World at Work, to my ears, very kind of grungy, you know, dirty, heavy. I don't know if I'm using, does it, do you see any, I mean, I'm not saying you were, hey, I'm going to do a Taxman guitar solo. It's the same feel though, isn't it? It's in the same neighborhood, and you know it, it wasn't consciously uh, or specifically influenced by that. But you know, even as a kid, because I was—I guess I would have been what, twelve or thirteen when that came out. Even well before I ever considered myself a musician or that anything like this would happen to my life, I was listening all the time. Like, I mean, my ears were open, and when I, you know, that whole album and all sorts of subsequent albums and albums before that, I was listening to like everything on that. And, you know, that, that solo, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Wasn't specifically, I don't think, an Eastern scale, but it certainly was avoiding, you know, blues rock. And um, slippering and slidering all over the place, uh, and it was just some, such an unexpected moment. Yeah, you didn't know where it was going to go. You had no idea where this thing was going to land at all. Yeah. And, and but it's beautifully composed because it does land in the right place, and then the song keeps on going. And the other thing I would say about after their little spoken studio intro was that I think the first thing you hear is that phenomenal McCartney bass, that thumpy, totally huge bottom end coming in there. I mean, just brilliant. Now, it's, I mean, it's such a showcase for McCartney with that guitar solo that you talked about, Martha, and the bass, I mean, that bass riff has been copied so many, I mean, the most overt perhaps being uh, a song by The Jam called Start, um, which is just boom, 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 boom.
yeah, I can see why that would be widely copied because it's just so great. Um, the other thing I would add to that was the subject matter. You know, as a 12-year-old, you're going, oh, tax man. Well, maybe they're getting, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that you'd even know what taxes were at that point, but it's it didn't sound good. Tax your feet. Yeah. Tax and the lyrics feet. are brilliant. Yeah, tax like they your feet that's sticking my memory. Yeah, well, the whole, but the lyrics are just Take phenomenal, you know? Yeah. They're so clever and brilliant. If you drive a car, car I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll sit. tax your seat. If you get too cold, cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. I think at the time too, like the, uh, in Britain, they were taxing something like nine. I don't know if I got the figure right, but it, it might have been as high as ninety percent. Like they were, if you were rich, and I think that's what sent the Rolling Stones off to France. Well, George Harrison said, uh, in those days, we paid 19 shillings and sixpence out of every pound. And with super tax and surtax and tax tax, it was ridiculous. A heavy penalty to pay for making money. Uh, And that was the inspiration. And your musician's ear, not surprisingly, Mark, uh, you talked about sort of the Indian thing. Uh, Harrison says, uh, I was pleased to have Paul play that bit on Taxman. If you notice, he did like a little Indian bit on it for me. So it's in there somewhere. Uh, well, not the bomb bomb, but that little bit before that. I think what I called slippery slidery thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very cool, and uh, and yeah, as I said in, in my notes, it, it did remind me, uh, you know, of, of the kind of solos that you played with uh, with Marfa and the Muffins. That one particularly on Women Around the World at Work, I love it, and uh, it works so well as several of yours did, uh, which gave you guys a unique sound. You know, the, the sax part from your old bandmate Andy Haas kind of joined right up into your guitar. Uh, uh, very Roxy music-like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what we were going to say, because I, I was listening to them, too, and I think, um, is it Remake, Remodel, or something where they all do, they all take, you know, there's the Ride of the Valkyries that Andy McKay does, and then the bass line from Day Tripper, but they all felt, they all slightly overlap, and when, when we were doing... Um, women around the world at work, I was going, yeah, like we'll do something, we'll follow that, and then the guitar comes in. So, you know, there's always stuff to be borrowed, you know. Um, Music is a fluid and ongoing thing between people. And Mm -hmm. the Beatles borrowed. Oh, yeah, well, everybody does, right? But, you know, and there's, there's never any ending to learning from other people. So... Yeah, you, you've been doing some deep listening, I think, Paul. <laughs> Trying. And now, here's my theory, and I'll get either you or, or Martha to uh, to comment on it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best here, my best verbal acrobatics to fold it in with the Martha and the Muffins thing, okay? So I think oh. the George Harrison count-in, so his voice is sort of very speeded, right? One, two, like that. And I think... 
I think it was a bit of a message to the fans that things had changed because three years earlier on their first album, Please Please Me, remember that opens with Paul McCartney and the one, two, three, four, and into I Saw Her Standing There. So here we are three years later and it's a count-in and now it's very speeded. So it doesn't, we're counting you in, but we're not the same guys who did I Saw Her Standing There. That's my theory on it. One day, it's going to be a studio experience. Yeah, um, but one day you're going to have to ask Paul uh, about. Oh, that, for what, what that would what that would be <laughs> that would be cool. Now, the way I think it, and I don't. You guys put this much thought into it, or maybe you'll surprise me, and you did. But when I listen to to this is the Ice Age, that first cut to me is announcing, okay. We're still here, but we're not the Echo Beach Band anymore because you have this first cut. It sounds very different. I'm talking about swimming. Very different opening, very different feel to the song. And then, Mark, it's you singing. So where's Martha? Where's that female lead vocalist? And she doesn't come in to... And to me, when I look on it now, I go, that was a real signal to people that this is going to be different than Metro Music. Yes, I, I don't know how con- I can't remember how conscious or unconscious we were about that. I really liked it starting with the street sounds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's why why the main reason we started with swimming was because it had started with that. Yeah, it sounded like a beginning, sound. I think, yeah. and um, it had that piano to start it. Uh, but at the time, you know, the, the, it was sharply divided. Like when we look at when the reviews were coming in, half the reviewers said they have just like slit their throats. Like this is the end of them. You know, this whole thing is like, and then, Beach. yeah, it was all about where's, you know, they're not like that band anymore. You know, and that was a negative thing. And then the other people thought that it was a great moment. And of course for us, it was a huge leap forward. Uh, so let's go to cut two on side one of Revolver and, uh, I mean, just a f- f- monumental song, Eleanor Rigby. up the rice in the church where a wedding has been lives in a dream waits at the window wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door who is it for all the lonely people now i would have thought you know when you said what was the most uh streamed song i thought maybe that might have been it um and again like the subject matter is is so poignant and um when you hear these first two cuts now you 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 think lyrically like is anybody writing stuff like this anymore uh, lyrically and perhaps there are you know because there's so much more music to hear now but it, it just there's something it seems like a part of its time there was so much and i think particularly with paul he was very influenced by his musical upbringing and all the family gatherings and everything. So there always seems to be something in a lot of the work, uh, and especially, well, not, I was going to say around this time, but in his later solo albums too, where he's looking back or, or there's a through way to the past. And, 
And Eleanor Rigby certainly has that feeling. Like she doesn't sound like a modern character. It, it's almost like an English equivalent of some deep South personage who hides away in their antebellum mansion, you know, with the live oak trees draping down and she dies and it was this empty life. And Paul really knew this person. I, I, I heard him talking about about her on, on um, about this song, on, on something on, on the internet. And uh, he had befriended this old, older woman. There's a couple of different stories that, that he's told about it. Um, one is that, yes, there was an older woman who he used to go visit who acted as a, a bit of an inspiration for him. Uh, and then I've all, also heard him say, no, it was just characters that I, that I came up with. So um, Paul McCartney isn't always the most reliable interpreter of his own work, if that makes any sense. Uh, you want to the time, I guess. Well, you know, and it was a long, these songs, were written a long time ago now, you know, so... Oh, he'd remember you. Well, yeah, perhaps. He, um. he, he says, uh, in the quote I have, I was sitting at the piano when I thought of it. The first few bars just came to me and I got this name in my head. Daisy Hawkins picks up the rice in the church and I don't know why. I couldn't think of much more, so I put it away for a day. Uh, then the name Father McCartney came to me and all the lonely people. But I thought that people would think it was supposed to be about my dad sitting knitting his socks. Dad's a happy yeah. lad. So I went through the telephone book and I got the name Mackenzie. But it, it paints, it's, it's almost like a Penny Lane as well, um, where it paints a complete picture of neighborhood. A, a neighborhood or a small town. It, it's so uh, the details, picturesque yeah. and, and has an elements of pathos. And you know, it's just beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And then, of course, there's uh, George Martin's fantastic string arrangement which is so yeah. him yeah. Uh, where you you see a perfect melding of producer and artist um, you know imagine what that song as great as it is would be like without the string quartet because it adds that element of you know it's this rich element that adds you know the, to the pathos of yeah. it as well you know the cellos churning away it's so much more emotional yes sadder because of the string arrangement he used uh, an octet of studio musicians four violins two cellos two violas uh, and they all performed a score that Martin had composed uh, and uh, this is a musical thing which you guys would get I'm not a musician but yesterday which also he composed as a string quartet for played legato Eleanor Rigby is played mainly in staccato chords uh, does that make sense to you well yeah points yeah we're, we're self-taught but we do like staccato it's a more um, focused attack at the beginning of your you know the ga -ga 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 -ga, like that whereas uh, the other one this the notes are joined together mm -hmm. Um they last, uh, last longer. A string player would probably castigate us for describing <laughs> it that way. <laughs> well, the other unique thing is that the mics were placed very close to the strings. Uh, now, I, I guess from what I've seen, normally strings were mic'd with a couple of microphones placed several feet in the air above the players so that they, they didn't capture the sounds of the bows scraping across the strings. But McCartney wanted to hear the bows on the strings. So they his instructions to George Martin were, I want this to have some bite. So a 
apparently, much to the chagrin of the players, they put the mics just inches from the strings and the players kept moving away. And then Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, would trot out and he'd move the mics closer again. Uh, and it, it just, it, it adds so much to the sound of the of the song. I think the way it was engineered. Yeah, well, like all of their songs, the way it was engineered had a huge, uh, in, you know, um, effect on what was going on. And definitely with that song, you can hear the bite of, of those strings. It's interesting to mention that because I never thought of that, but they do, uh, they sound completely unlike probably most string recordings of the time. Like the, I can really, like as a, you know, someone who engineers our stuff, and you would know that too, Martha, like obviously the closer you get to the sound source, uh, it, it completely changes the dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. So that's interesting, yeah. Mic placement, mic placement is everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's and and it was the Emmerich was I guess the first at Abbey Road to do that, and he he got it right in there. Uh, the score was influenced by a Bernard Herrmann's score for the movie Psycho, which was out around oh. that time. With the you, you can you know dent 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 dent, yeah. you can really hear that. Um, <laughs> now the thing. Every band needs a George Martin, uh, I think is fair to say. Someone who can help a band decorate the room, so to speak. So to take all the elements that are already there and just kind of arrange them so that they present themselves as, as something that's cohesive. That's my long way of asking you guys whether Daniel Lanois was that producer for Martha and the Muffins when he worked with you on your trio of great albums, This is the Ice Age, Dance Park, and 1984's Mystery Walk. Was he that guy? I think we we kind of we definitely made that comparison that he was sort of like our George Martin to uh, to us. As, we complimented each other. Though, we did, yeah. Just it, like with George Martin, it was a give and take. So. It was, and the thing about Dan was that he wasn't out of an art school background, so it wasn't so much that we were looking for somebody to de uh, decorate the room because we already had our ideas about that. It was. It was more that he was the first person we worked with where he didn't find my weird ideas weird. You know, because if I asked him to do some unconventional thing like record cardboard boxes and then and being kicked down stairways and then dropped a couple of octaves, like a lot of engineers before then, or not that we had a lot of engineers before then, but... There were those instances where they just raise their eyebrows and go, "Oh God, Mark's the next." You know, the next thing you know, he's going to bring out his synthesizer, and God knows what's going to happen. <laughs> Man would just start setting everything up, and he he was uh, he absorbed everything that was coming out because he was more out of a roots background. So that that was thing his thing. But the, the 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 amazing thing about him, he was willing to absorb all these things, and around the same time. He started working with Brian Eno, who, of course, was the art school. Um, well, he called himself a non-musician, but it's not really true. But 
but you know, so he was absorbing those things from Eno, and I, I would I would say that he was probably absorbing some stuff from us because we were out of such disparate backgrounds. So, but he made those things happen, and then he added his own musicianship, and what he taught us was groove. Like we really in in the first two albums, you know, because we were basically a DIY band. The challenge was to get from the beginning of the song to the end of the song without making a mistake. And I think maybe that was all we, it wasn't all we cared about, but it was always, at least for me, a breath of a sigh of relief. Like, oh my God, we got through that and I didn't screw up anything. Not and from a vocal point of view. Not from a vocal point of view, no. But <laughs> I put a little bit more into it. <laughs> Just kidding. From the beginning to the end. Yeah. So I, that's on me, I guess. But um, he he's introduced us to groove. And I remember, you know, we'd be doing something we, and we'd put an accent somewhere and he goes, why don't you try putting it on one and or, you know, four and or something like that. We go, And I never thought about stuff like that. I mean, I'd heard music that was more syncopated and, you know, obviously, but I don't think I'd ever analyzed how you would get a beat to happen in between two beats or where you push a beat or you'd lay back on it. You know, those it, it was very immediate too. Like you see, see the moment, moment somebody came up with a little idea, you know, a triangle idea or something. He'd set it up really right away and you'd, you'd do it and capture that, that moment, that moment. Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily spend a lot of time twiddling dials to get the right sound. If he saw a moment happening and this was another brilliant aspect of how he worked, he, he was able to recognize something really great was happening in the room and he'd, he'd be doing it, you know, before maybe you'd even finish thinking of the idea. Martha, did he, uh, did he elevate your vocal performance? Definitely to, to some degree. I think that we spend a lot more time concentrating on the vocals and also layering the vocals mm. that as well. So yeah, he did. Um, he wasn't into the, doing a lot of effects. I always thought that, I could have sounded a little more affected, but maybe that was the style of the band at that time. Yeah, there were certain there were people afterward that did more yeah. treatments on the voice. I like what Mark does to my voice now in our our home studio. Well, we've been we've been doing it for a while. Right? <laughs> well, the, the, the last thing uh, before we leave Eleanor Rigby, uh, one of my favorite Beatles songs ever, and this was talking of Daniel Lanois and producers, but this was George Martin's idea. The song was done and it was a last minute idea that Martin had. Uh, after a full day of remixing, he dragged Paul into Studio 3 from midnight until 1.30 a.m., the log show, and he had him add that counter melody vocal at the end. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came, Father Mackenzie, wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. All the lonely oh, look at all the lonely where do they all come from? All oh, look at all the lonely do they all belong? And it, it could have almost been a higher string part, the way he composed it. You know, when you're talking about a countermill, I mean, it, it's much better Paul doing it, but you could almost imagine the way it works against the other stuff how it could have been another element in the ensemble, you know? Um, 
Brilliant. Yeah, what a song. What a song. Uh, and we go from uh, Eleanor Rigby, so it's something that people, you know, they certainly wouldn't have heard a lot of at that time of the, with the, the Baroque influence on a pop song. Uh, we go to something uh, a little more uh, traditional, I guess, but maybe not really. I'm only sleeping. so John, you know, I'm only sleeping and it's about dreaming and he can't get out of bed and there were probably parallels to that in his real life. Um, and of course it's got the backwards guitars. Um, and again, it's sort of like the, the hints, I mean, I guess psychedelia was in its early days there, but you can, you know, the whole backwards guitar thing around, okay, here it comes. And I guess, the LSD readings fed into this. Um, and there's a, there's a certain quality to the guitars that I read recently, and I can't remember what the specific Beatles song was, where they wanted it to sound somehow more. And I don't know whether they meant more pointy or something. And they got the engineer, which was probably Jeff Emmerich, but to keep doing the same EQ over and over again and re-recording it. And it gave it this very compressed, pointy sound, which um, is typical of this era. And I think the guitars on here, there's a lot of guitar parts on this album that sound like they did that. And I've actually been tempted to try that myself because I, again, as a kid, I was listening to this going, how's that guitar sound like it doesn't sound like anybody else's guitar like how are they doing that you know what's going on there loads of tape effects uh like much of the album so we, we've got uh strummed acoustic guitars by lennon harrison and mccartney uh mccartney also plays bass but they recorded the, the basic rhythm track the same way that they did for the song rain which they'd done earlier that year which was on fast tape and then played back at normal speed so it gives it that really sludgy dreamy sound i guess that was the other thing that struck me really forcefully back you know upon hearing these songs for the first time was how dreamed out they were and at some point you know after we'd done recording and i heard some of the beatles stuff back again i thought i wonder like if they were slowing the drum kit down because when the cymbals hit they didn't go crash, they go poof with this long, long decay. And I'm going, okay, symbols don't sound like, and, the, and the, there'd be a certain, I, I laziness isn't the right word, but it's sort of, no, like the specific, more like the drums, mm. like just this, you know, and, and now when I hear it, I go, oh, yeah, they slowed the drums down. But I mean, nobody was really doing that in pop music at that point. And, it, it's, and the way they were able to color the emotional uh, atmosphere of a song just by doing things like that. Yeah. And so 
Are you saying, Paul, that uh, I'm only sleeping? They slowed all that stuff down. Well, they did. They did the same thing that the basic rhythm track. Yeah, they were. They were. Right. They recorded it on. And again, I'm not an engineer, but just going. They recorded it on. They did the. You know, the song "Rain" as well. Yeah. It has that very right. sludgy. So they recorded it at on fast tape and then played it back at normal speed. So it just. It has that kind of sludgy, weird sound, I guess, yeah. uh, which was unique. Now, the other big thing, of course, was the reversed guitar duet played by Harrison. Um, so what he did is uh, he apparently wrote out what the solo would sound like playing it frontwards, so to speak, and then he played it backwards on the tape and then when they played it back it had as it was front words but it sounded strange uh so they were doing all kinds of things like that uh jeff emmerich says it was a five-hour late night recording session uh an interminable day lasting uh what was it? Well, he says it lasted nine hours i can still picture george hunched over his guitar for hours on end headphones clamped on brows furrowed in concentration so you can imagine what that would have taken some of the innovations of Mark and Martha that I looked up. So 1966, here's some of the new stuff that, that was new then. So the use of a Fairchild compressor was new yeah. uh, on, on the drums. So they use a Fairchild compressor in the drums. Uh, use of headphones for recording. Up until, oh, yeah, up yeah. until then, they'd, they'd not. Uh, very speed. Yeah. Uh, artificial double tracking, so ADT. Right. This was, yeah. Yeah. Backwards recordings, tape loops, and here's another one, another drum thing for you. Uh, the standard way that they'd mic'd a drum up until then was with two mics, uh, one on the kick and then one kind of above the kit. And what Jeff Emmerich started to do was he put a mic underneath Ringo's snare drum, mm. Uh, which I guess gave it a bit of a different sound. So there's, yeah, yeah because the bottom snare, uh, the bottom of the snare has a different sound than the top. So, and this would have gone, this would have, you know, um, followed alongside, you know, the, the fact that the mixing boards were, there were more channels okay. and the and the very speed. I mean, the first tape decks would have had like a maybe one or two tape speeds, but they'd be in octaves. But then very speed meant you could change the speed between octaves, which meant you could uh, like maybe record a tone in E and then play something back in another uh, key, but you'd have that as a reference. So you'd play in another speed, but you'd be in tune. And then when you lowered it back down, it would be, you know, upper, higher, upper, uh, and of course, they were getting all this stuff from, uh, like, I think it was 1945 when the first commercial tape recorders came out. And literally within probably five minutes, somebody was cutting the tape up, <laughs> throwing it up into the air and re, you know, re um, editing it back and changing the speed. So these 
things, uh, you know, they were all completely open to. I mean, remarkably innovative that way. Uh, from that song, we go to uh, another George Harrison song. George making <laughs> big contribution on this album as opposed to the earlier ones in terms of a songwriter. Uh, and it was the Beatles and George Harrison's first attempt at recording a song in the classical Indian style, and it's called Love to You. sophisticated melodic um, sense about him, but this wouldn't be the song that I would have said that was apparent. However, it does have, there's a track in it where it goes, where he's singing, da, 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 but under the do, 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 there's this like sound. And I love that sound. And it sounds like a heavily treated sitar but you can probably tell us what that is well, um, there was a the reading here in the inner notes there there, there was a tablet player yeah you can hear that. That. yeah so the, you don't see other people people mentioned on beatles albums much no, you don't actually, but there you go. No, you're right, uh, Martha. He's one of the few. Uh, there are two who get actually credited on this album, and that was unusual. Uh, there was a, a guy named Anil Bagwat, <clears throat> who's the tabla player, and Alan Civil, who's a horn player, uh, yeah. got a shout-out as well. But the fun story out of this song to me is one that that's not so much with the song, uh, but the guy, Anil Bagwat, um, he said, the session came out of the blue. I found an interview with him, and he tells the story. He says, a chap called uh, Angardi called me up and asked if I was free that evening to work with George. Uh, I didn't know who he met. He didn't say it was George Harrison. It was only when a Rolls Royce came to pick me up that I realized I'd be playing on a Beatles session. <laughs> Uh, wow. When I arrived at Abbey Road, there were girls everywhere waiting for the Beatles to come out. George told me what he wanted, and I tuned the tabla with him. Uh, he suggested I play something in the Ravi Shankar style, 16 beats, uh, though he agreed that I should improvise. Indian music is all improvisation. I was very, very lucky. They put my name on the record sleeve. I'm really proud of that. They were the greatest ever. My name's on the sleeve. It was one of the most exciting times of my life. Can you imagine getting that call <laughs> yeah that, that would be in the car driving up <laughs> with a rolls royce too so i wonder if that rolls royce was that would that, that have been john lennon's psychedelic one or is that too early because mm -hmm. remember i know that was more like magical mystery tour we had some rolls royce that was all like painted up uh, but nevertheless, any Rolls Royce would have been quite the sight to pull up in front of your tour. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get picked up in Rolls Royces very often. I don't know about no, you. I mean, you, know, you... <laughs> All right. Uh, before we move on to the next track, uh, I just want to take a, a quick moment to talk to any musicians or artists, or maybe if you're somebody who manages uh, a musician or an artist, uh, I got a pitch for you. How would you like a custom podcast like this? 
this one in the style of The Walrus Was Paul in support of either an old album or maybe your next album. We'll go through your album, new or old, track by track, and you can use the podcast to then promote your work the way you'd like it to be promoted. Use it on social channels or even as a special bonus to send to your fans or patrons. If that sounds like an idea that might interest you, then get in touch with me via my website, romicast.com, and we will take it from there. And uh, also, if you'd like to receive the once in a while absolutely free The Walrus Was Paul newsletter, Uh, I'll usually preview upcoming episodes, maybe toss in the odd bit of trivia. You can receive that email blast by going to the website and registering. It is absolutely free. Let's get back into side one of Revolver. And up next, a song that I love. Uh, I love most of the songs in this album, but this is a beautiful song. I just think it's it's so perfectly constructed. Uh, and who cares what I think? Paul McCartney, the man who wrote the song, says that if pushed, he would probably say that here, there, and everywhere is his personal favorite of all of the songs that he has written. To lead a better life, I need my love to be here, here, making each day of the song I will it's the same thing and that's a beautiful song too well it's Paul at his you know when you think of him singing here there and everywhere it's probably made millions of girls melt because he's got this soft Paul cuddly voice it's very soft and it's not like they probably you know didn't uh, well there's no hard edge to it I mean he had he's such a um, diverse kind of singer. He can go from full-on throat and little Richard whoops and stuff to this very gentle, soft thing. And well, I can say that I certainly melted to his voice. I'm sure you yeah. did. I had posters of posters of the Beatles in my bedroom, up on the wall, and I would kiss them goodnight every night. <laughs> <laughs> I was so in love with the Beatles. Yeah. Who was your favorite, Martha? Were you a, were you a, a a a Paul fan or a John fan, George? Who was who got the biggest kiss? I think I changed, but I think Paul was definitely the first one I fell in love with. <laughs> It's a fantastic song of, I mean, it's very old school writing style. And by that, I mean, uh, like it has the little intro bit. So uh, I think of um, the uh, the George and Ira Gershwin song, I've Got a Crush on You or or yeah. or Anything Goes by Cole Porter. You know, they, they they have that little sort of, you know, to lead a better life. And then yeah. it, and then it starts the song proper. Um, McCartney's favorite words are changing my life with the wave of her hand yeah well they're beautiful lyrics and that you know it just goes to show how um interested he was in all kinds of songwriting because i mean that's like a recessive like the classic songbook uh approach to a lot of songwriting in the i don't know if it started in the 30s but certainly in the 40s 
there would be this thing called a recessive, and sometimes it wouldn't sound anything like the rest of the song. And mm-hmm. that may, in fact, be part of its definition. I'm not sure. Sometimes they're very long too. And sometimes they're very long. Like someone, uh, someone. Some, to, yes. Well, there's some film that, that they show Deanna Durbin or somebody writing a letter to Clark Gable, and it's, it's long recessive. And then I can't remember which song comes out in. Maybe it's someone to watch over me, possibly. It might be. But he he loved all the different kinds of music. I think. In, in, from all of them. Well, I think those influences are huge, and and certainly the beginning of that of here, there, and everywhere is like that too. My and dream, it, it's my dream to write a song with Paul McCartney someday. There are beautiful changes in this song too. You know, the whole middle eight is really nice, and um, also the little guitar uh, flourishes that happen around. They're they're in a way they're very. Uh, sort of traditional band, almost like 30s, 40s band arrangements, but they're being done on guitar. And I think one of the generalizations about um, Rubber Soul and Taxman in particular is how amazing their arrangements were, even when it was just a band playing. You really got the sense that it was a band playing, and more so on the songs that don't have all the weird overlays, but um, or the core of the song is still two guitars, a bass, and a drummer. And yet the arrangements are fantastic, you know? This leads me to to want to ask you guys, uh, and I know you've talked about it tons, but about the band's most well-known song. Uh, and I know it's a song, from what I've read, that it was started by you, Mark, when you worked at a wallpaper factory. Uh, it's still played all over the world. Uh, I mean, you hear it most weeks on BBC Radio 2 and Virgin Radio in the UK. I'm talking, of course, about, about Echo Beach. Now, th- this song, it, it came to you in stages, did it? it not it did yeah it was probably over a two-year period because that stint as a wallpaper in the wallpaper factory happened in the summer of 75 and that's where the the sort of the essence of the song uh was conceived even though at the time it was more looking back to the times of a wallpaper inspection person when I was writing the song, I went, oh, yeah, yeah, that was great job. great job. I didn't really want to beat it. But, you know, from that that point during the summer of 75 to the formation of the band in 77, and I think Echo Beach was finished in February of 78. So it's one of the early songs. And a trifle untrue But I can't help it I'm a romantic fool It's a habit of mine To watch the sun go down On Echo Beach I watch the sun go down But it was quite unconscious and, and the guitar riff just sort of fell into my hands Like so many musicians talk about being conduits, you know, people go, well, where'd you get that idea? And, you know, you do get a lot of ideas that you can talk about. Well, Paul McCartney talks a lot about where he gets his ideas. And I find that so interesting. It is. Other other songwriters talking about how they write. That's true. But, uh, but just as much, I think, or maybe not as much, I don't know, but people just come, it comes in unconsciously, yeah, no. you know, and you can't, you can't go, well, 
I was listening to Pet Sounds one day by the Beach Boys, and there was some guitar that sounded like that. You know, it just came out of nowhere. And I thought, oh, that's cool. Have your radar up, actually. You, yeah, well, as a songwriter, you always should have your radar up, whether you're conscious of it or not. It's, it's funny that you mention uh, Pet Sounds, because when McCartney talks about here, there, and everywhere, he frequently cites uh, God Only Knows as his main source of inspiration know, right, right. for here, there, and everywhere, um, you know, on Pet Sounds. And uh, it, it's funny, on the 17th of May, 1966, uh, the day after the new Beach Boys album had been released, uh, McCartney and John Lennon went to a private listening party for Pet Sounds at London's Waldorf Hotel. And McCartney, really impressed by that, he says that inspired him to write here, there, and everywhere. Uh, so that's that's interesting that you were also inspired by the same great album. Well, they were just, you know, Brian Wilson's a genius, and and that song is is composed for the most part like a classical piece of music. It, it's so classical in its structure, um, and I think certainly like a song like back in the USSR. There's a definite homage to the Beach Boys, you know, it's just, yeah. you're going, okay, this is the Beach Boys song that the Beach Boys never wrote, but, <laughs> and, and they wouldn't have had Very the, flattering. they wouldn't have had the parody of the whole Soviet Union parody. That's definitely a Beatles thing, but musically they were grabbing stuff from all over the place as writers do, you know, you get your influences from everywhere. Somebody should play that song today. Yeah, I'm sure somebody is playing that. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere, yeah. Now, Mar- Martha, somebody told me that uh, you had a you had a head cold when you went in to record the uh, the vocals for Echo Beach. Is that a true story? Yeah, I had something going on in my, my nasal passage or something because you can hear hear it in the um, first verse when I say a, a romantic fool. There's a growl in my my throat, and I can't get that back. <laughs> And it's and it's interesting. I think I think that's something that people pick up on, really liking my vocal. And I was we did a a version of the song in the last year or so, and I tried to get that back, and I just couldn't find it. I didn't well, I didn't want to get a cold just to get that. Luckily, so <laughs> not worth it. Well, we'll talk about that version a little bit later on because it's it's terrific. Uh, now, before we leave Echo Beach, guys, I just want to say, like, I mean, at this point in your life. Uh, when you're looking back on your your body of work, is it is it something that's like a comfortable suit that you're happy to put on? Because I'm sure there must have been a time when it felt more like a an ugly suit that you didn't want to wear or a weight on your shoulders. Well, it had such a big influence on our, our lives and our, our careers, and um, you can't you can't ignore it. And it's paid the bills. And it's been an emotional tie to our fans, definitely, and people who only know the one song. You know, people will introduce us sometimes. Uh, you know, this is Martha and the Muffins, Mark Gain and Martha Johnson. I say, yeah, who, who are they? <laughs> and you say Echo Beach, and they go, oh, yeah, man, I love that song. <laughs> so it's been a real calling card for us. And, and I often wonder what our lives would have been like if Mark hadn't written that song. It's completely different, you know whole different scenario different different uh, children we would have had partners everything because the band wouldn't have lasted with more than a couple of years tops without that song maybe not it um 
It changed everything. It changed everything um, in good and bad ways. And, you know, when you talk about over the years, like, you know, we, we were happy about it, but it also was a bit of a weight because uh, there, there's that group, huge group of people that probably only know that song. And, you know, we've been designated as a one-hit wonder, which geographically is not true whatsoever, but there you go. But it also kind of, um, in some ways, uh, eclipsed the album stuff. So we have, there's definite groups to Martha and, uh, and the Muffins listeners. There's the Echo Beach people, and, you know, there's no undervaluing the effect it had on people. I mean, it's quite a remarkable thing. And I'm forever grateful for that. On the other hand, as songwriters, we're going, well, we can name a number of songs that we probably, that we've written that we thought were actually better songs. And that's uh, possibly a subjective view of it. But um, I, I would say that it would be really great if more people heard more of what we did. Um, I which I guess every songwriter says. I think it's like. interesting you said there's different people <clears throat> who, who listen to different par parts of our career. There's the early part, and then there's people who listen to Dance Park, and this is the Ice Age, and like that. And then later on, uh, Black Stations, White Stations, and the dance kind of vibe, and you know, Talking Heads influences, things like that. So it's the, these compartments. compartments. We're never sure who we are. Well, we <laughs> We're changing all the time. I think that's true. Like as songwriters, we never wanted to be stuck in one place. Um, I think a lot of bands, once they have a big degree of success, they're going, you know, there might be pressure on them from within or without going, why would you change your formula? And I think there's that joke about ACDC that, you know, somebody said, you know, they've written like 150 songs and, and but they're all the same song and and angus young or somebody said yeah that's the whole point you know like, and that's why they're they're so huge right but that, that you know and as great as that formula is for them it wouldn't have worked for us because we were always looking our influences are super wide and we like trying out different things that well, that, that's why the beatles are such a uh, um, influence too i think because they tried different things all the time but they had and the benefit had success. of huge, huge success. Which yeah, but people were more, more open to listening to the, their changes and accepting them, I think. Well, but they were so big, yeah, but, but they were very talented too. Well, it was all those things, but the baby boomers fueled that. You know, when you think of the Ed Sullivan show, like nobody, there was nothing else on television on Sunday. Yeah, three channels. <laughs> you know, there, there was at the Ed Sullivan show and probably a couple of other things that you never watched. And so millions of people were in on that and it just you know we grew up with the Beatles as the Beatles expanded their songwriting capabilities we grew up with them you know the thing about Echo Beach was it's unfortunate that it never got released in the states I think that would put it on another level because it was a hit everywhere it was released talk about changing styles and evolving I mean the Beatles as you pointed out Martha certainly did that uh, album to album but in this case track to track we go from here there and everywhere of uh, a real songwriter song if you will and we come into Yellow Submarine um, <laughs> the most streamed track on the album in the town where I was born lived a man who sailed to sea and he told us of his life in the land of submarines so 
we sailed up to the sun Till we found the sea of green And we lived beneath the waves In our yellow sun. It was a shock when you said it was the most streamed from this album because when you think of the stuff that's on here, that might not be near the top of our list, but, <laughs> um, you know, and it does sort of come across as one of those, well, we'll let Ringo sing a song. And I always love his voice. Like there's something so oh, yeah. endearing about his voice. So mm-hmm. I don't think I, I dislike it maybe the way you do, but it definitely um, isn't one of my favorites on this album, but it does kind of go tap into the psychedelic thing. It's just novelty too. Well, it's a bit of a novelty song, and but it's interesting to sort of go, okay, so what sound effects things did they go into the BBC library to pillage this time? It's you strange know. to follow, follow here, there, and everywhere with Yellow Submarine too. It is like you're right out of, of the mood. Yeah, it is a bit of a change. It's stuck in the Here's what McCartney says about it. Um, this is in his book that's out right now called The Lyrics, which is a fantastic read if you're interested in, in McCartney. Uh, he says, A large part of the subtext of Yellow Submarine was that even then, the Beatles were living in our own capsule, uh, out uh, in our own microclimate, our own controlled environment. Another factor that can't be overstated was the incredible popularity of TV programs at the time that featured the underwater world. Uh, The series Sea Hunt with Lloyd Bridges was on the air at the time. Uh, Flipper, the TV show about the dolphin, ran between 1964 and 67. So that's what he says about the song. Okay, well, that makes it more interesting. And if I ever met him, I'd probably ask him, I'd say, okay, Paul, did you make that up? afterwards to make the song sound more important because it does (laughs) but i have to say i love the drum sound on yellow submarine and the snare sound is great and as we were driving along the other day when we were listening to this album to get ready for this you know mother's going i don't think i'd like this song that much right but i said yeah but listen to that snare sound she went yeah it's really great (laughs) and you know that whole rhythm thing the gang gang you know, the kick drum, great pattern. Um, and, of course, John's, uh, you know, megaphone it voice is, and stuff. Um, <laughs> well, they did ransack the uh, the studio store cupboard for special effects. So they, there are chains, a ship's bell, tap dancing mats, whistles, uh, horns, waves, a tin bath filled with water, wind and thunderstorm machines, as well as a cash register and trivia fans, the same cash register that Pink Floyd later used on money. So oh, there you go. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Where was the kitchen sink? <laughs> yeah, no, they got it. They got everything going there. Uh, the and the other water thing that influenced it, I think. Do remember remember a show? It was on in the UK, and I think it ran here. It was called Thunderbirds. It was that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's the one we were trying to think of. Okay. Thunderbird. Well, yeah. well do, remember one of the vehicles in that show was Thunderbird Four, which was a yellow submarine, 
And oh. I can't believe that McCartney didn't see that on TV and that that, no. that didn't influence him a little bit because yeah. the, sh- the show was on right here. Now, Martha, that leads me uh, very easily because this is such a, a lovely song to play to kids. Uh, the children's album that you did in 1995, I want to say, and it won a Juno Award in 1997 for Best Children's Album. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm guessing, I, so just having a young child wasn't enough work for you, so you decided to, to maybe do an album. Uh, what are your memories of it? Why did, why did you decide to do it? Well, I, was, I started writing it before I was even pregnant, I think, because I was wanting to have a child quite badly by that time. And um, so I just started writing, and I, I, I also listened to a lot of children's music to see what was out, out there, and I found... A lot of it talked down to kids, I thought. And I wanted to do an album that would sound like really well-constructed songs with good melodies and, and funny and interesting lyrics that uh, the production quality was was um, on an adult, adult level. It was really, really well done. So that was my goal. And I, I was so focused on having, having our daughter Eve at that time. I just immersed myself in it musically as well. We all need a spot that we call our own to invite all our friends or to just be alone. My treehouse, I find, is the best place for me as only the birds can see me, you see. It's somewhere that's special to think and to play. Or best of all, I write songs every day. I write songs that are fast and songs that are slow. Songs that are high and songs that are low. Some make you laugh. And some make you cry, and others I write, well, I don't know why. So climb up my tree, bring your voices along. It's time to begin to sing the first song. We had a great time making that album. Because oh, so much fun. We were, you know, it's just like Revolver. We were out there taping things. <clears throat> yeah, like, did we, there's a, do- a friend at a farm farmhouse that we would go to and they had a dock by the pond we played the dock like a like a marimba in the middle of the night the with the, the crickets night, going, the crickets going. we were using all these found sounds and um it was just an enjoyable thing to do having funny voices and very speeding things and it did help with the tension of having a child in the first year <clears throat> having a grandchild now in the first she's turning one this <clears throat> next month you know we were sort of empathizing with our, our daughter, what she's going through, what we, we went through. So we get to the uh, the end of side one, last cut, and it was uh, it's the final track on side one, but also it was the final track recorded for the album. Uh, she said, she said, and famously inspired by a, an LSD influenced conversation between uh, a, a stoned John Lennon and a stoned Peter Fonda uh, when they were when they were hanging out. Uh, pretty heavy sounding song for 1966. <laughs> by the lyrics like I know what it's like to be dead and I thought whoa you know that was heavy for a kid to hear back then um, 
And mm-hmm. I just say I had never been born. Yeah, you know, you're making me feel like I've never been born. Like, 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 and we were singing in the car the other day, like, what a heavy lyric that is. It's a great lyric because it's just the gravity of it, you know, and you're going, well, if you didn't feel down before that, those two lines are going to sink you to the bottom. But um, the guitars sound great. They again have that classic kind of beatly sound. And the weird time signatures, you know, how it goes from 4 4 to. Um, I didn't, you, you probably know. <laughs> I, think it, I think it goes 4 4 to 3 4. Oh, oh is it only 3 waltz. 4? I thought it was something. Does it sound like a waltz or. Well, I'll have to count it out. I'll have to listen to it again, see what the hell's going on there. Because it, and it's really interesting. Um, you don't hear stuff like that in pop music very often where there's this whole where it's almost like the cadence of the lyrics drive what the um, arrangement of the song is going to be. It's not, I don't know if they sat down and will be really clever and throw this completely offsides time signature in there. Well, we did that in Casualties of Glass. Did we? Yeah, yeah. it was a very quiet ballad, you know, oh, yeah, kind like, of a beautiful song at the beginning, then it stops, it goes into this... Uh, Happy ending, <laughs> but the time signature is not different. No, but the, the feel. Yeah, there's a different completely. feel. And three hundred years. So we're we're through side one, and we've had a straight ahead rocker, Tax Man, a song with Baroque overtones, Eleanor Rigby, experimental backwards guitars. You know, I'm only sleeping. A, a song entirely sitar driven, a children's song. I mean, so, so based on that level of experimentation, I think I know the answer, but maybe you'll maybe maybe not, um, which is why I want to ask you the question: uh, What album? was your revolver. I'd say this is the Ice Age. Yeah, I, I think Ice Age. Well, when they did. <laughs> uh, Ice Age was the one. We had the freedom with Dan to, um, and being away from a major label, we were able to just do what we wanted, which is really what we've always wanted to do. I don't think, you know, we were ever interested in fame as such. We just wanted to be artists, 
Guys, thanks for this. I will uh, look forward to digging into side two with you. Well, thank you. I am always interested to know what you think. Uh, What are your thoughts on our thoughts regarding, in this case, Revolver that we've been talking about for the last hour or so? And I hope that maybe our discussion sends you off in the direction of giving Revolver a listen if you haven't listened to it in a while or who knows, maybe you haven't ever sat and listened to it ever. Who knows who's listening? Uh, Anyway. Give the album a listen. I hope it pushes you in that direction. It's, it still sounds great to me after all these years. You can uh, chip in on the conversation about this podcast or anything to do with The Walrus Was Paul in several ways. If you want to talk about this episode, then go to the website, romicast.com. Uh, each podcast has its own page. So each episode has its own individual page. There's a comment section at the bottom of that page. Just jump on there and leave your comment. That's one way to do it. You can also interact on Twitter or Instagram. Romanuk Paul is the handle on both. And of course, there is Facebook. Just do a search on Facebook for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you can leave a comment there. Do join us next time on The Walrus Was Paul. Martha, Mark, and I will continue our discussion. We'll be talking about side two of Revolver. Until then, you take care. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? I play the drums, but I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar.